Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, it's me. Welcome back to VM. Welcome back, Vertical Vertical Momentum. Welcome back. Guys, um, you, you know how I feel about September 11th. You know how it changed my life and changed my perspective on everything. Um, but we're going to be talking about that 9-11 is still claiming lives every single day. And we're going to be talking about that with my friend Eric. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. Without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. If you guys love um, woodworking, our friends at Ballish Woodworks makes make some of the best handmade woodworking for your home. Now, just a hint, guys, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. Maybe you want to make some, get something made for your wife. For Mother's Day, I got my wife. She, they made her a uh, cutting board. It's the only thing she will use. And they actually etched our family name into it. So that's maybe a good idea to check to check them out at Ballish Woodworks. Now, um, and then also Tammy Moses from the Hoarding Solution. You know, a lot of people think hoarding is, you know, it's just a... Uh, could be a mental thing. A lot of it's a physical thing, but a lot of people don't realize how many first responders and firefighters get killed because of people that have hoarding issues and they can't get out of the homes. So definitely reach out to Tammy Moses if you know anybody living in the hoard, because maybe it might save you, but it might also save the first responder going in to help that person. All right, guys, thank you so much. Like I said, we're going to be talking some about some heavy stuff today with my friend Eric. And um, he's changing the game, and, and I can't wait to see what we do together in the future. Eric, my friend, how are you doing today? Very good. Very good. Grateful to be here. So what's going on? How is your day going? Uh, going good so far. Been been out uh, talking with our, our uh, sponsors and, and our future podcast guests that we're going to be having on very soon. Um, we're currently in the Nashville area with the 9-11 Remembered Let's Roll podcast tour bus, which I'm sitting in right now so um got some great stuff coming up around the corner and, and look forward to telling you all about what we have going on yep so talk to us you know for me i always like to know to get to know the person you know behind the, the camera so talk to us about where you're from where you grew up and what kind of little boy was eric so I, I was actually born in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, but um, I never actually lived there um, until 2011. I grew up um, virtually entirely in California, uh, raised and educated there. Um, and uh, I, I was involved with uh, uh, fire department and EMS uh, pretty much since college and, and beyond in my uh, personal life uh, and professional life. Um, I left California in 2011 and relocated to uh, Massachusetts, where I was actually born and uh, spent time with my extended family, which is 99% uh, still there in the, in the Massachusetts uh, area. And uh, pretty much been working full time with our foundation uh, and, our, and our massive project with the 9-11 Traveling Memorial and Podcast Tour. Now, have you always, did you always find a fascination with fire department and, and, and having a heart of service? Was that something that was always ingrained in you? Well, my, my father was, um, 
uh, in the Marine Corps. And he, as a tiny kid, I was one of the kids that had the radio flyer tricycle with the hook and ladder uh, cart behind it. And, you know, that was always a part of my life. And my father was very, very big into um, showing me as I grew up about um, American exceptionalism, uh, people who we honor, why we honor them. Um, a, a strange thing that my father used to do is is uh, take take me to cemeteries and and show me uh, famous people in in cemeteries or relatives of ours and things like that. So there's always been a part of my life that was basically connected to what would be considered service or you know being a being a person that serves your community in some way, shape, or form. Now, what year did you go through the academy? The are you saying the fire academy? Yep. Well, I started um, working with the fire department in college um, in California, and that was the beginning of it. So you enter the academy, um, we'll say around 1984. Um, and as I moved throughout different places in California, um, I was always involved with uh, fire departments, whether it was on um, a direct level or a, or a volunteer level. Um, I had my own search and rescue uh, business in California, which is how I became involved with with search dogs and cadaver dogs. So um, it's it's always been a continuous part of my life, I, I would say, probably since the early 80s. Now, you know, I've talked to a lot of police officers. I've talked to a lot of military, a lot of corrections officers but I've never really had the honor of talking to a, a, a firefighter. So I just want to say thank you. Um, talk to what going through the firefighter academy is like, because it seems like, I mean, I know it's, you know, like me and my wife, we're hooked on that show, 9-11, And it seems like you guys have to go through so many different scenarios. And it seems like, how do you guys figure all that out? So what was your academy experience like? Well, a lot, a lot of it actually depends on where specifically um, you are and what type of um, fire department you could be involved with. So you could be in a metropolitan fire academy. Um, you could be in a fire academy that could be associated with, say, the forest service or forest firefighting. Um, but you you go through all of the basic skill sets that you would need to um, have to um, be a um uh, an operator of any of the equipment apparatus and first aid skills, advanced first aid skills. So just depending on where you actually um, probably sit within in your future career in the fire department, that's kind of how your your training goes. A lot of the, the academies are actually um, linked nationally. So there's national standards and, and things that you go through uh, to become a firefighter. Um, you always have uh, continuing education, um, continuing training. So you could uh, be doing high, low angle rope rescue training. You can be doing uh, confined space training. You can be doing hazmat training. All of this stuff is always ongoing and continuous. So it's always a part of your life. It's not just the academy. It's a continuous education throughout your entire time within um, agencies like that no, and you know, as well. You know, I have a lot of friends that are police officers and first responders, and a lot of them, like like military, you know, there's that thin blue line, thin green line. I'm sure there's a three, a, a thin red line where, you know, 
like in, in the military, we couldn't tell our families what we saw over there or what we did um, just because it would probably scar them for life. Um, but we always had our brothers to talk to. Now, is that the same thing in, in, in your, in your job? Is that something that you guys find that you guys, you can always open up to another firefighter where you can't really open up to your own family? You know, that's, that's actually a really um, great question because um, a lot of the people that I actually work with right now, um, uh, some of the foundations that we're involved with are um, counseling uh, foundations that deal with first responders and veterans. And one of the main questions I get asked all the time is, um, why is it so hard for a first responder to come out and talk about suicide or PTSD and those types of things versus the military? And I, I, my personal experience is that, um, you know, way, way, way back when I started, you were damaged goods within a police department or a fire department if you came out and started talking about this kind of stuff. Um, you could be, you know, pretty much eliminated from uh, something that you've spent your whole life trying to get into if you were considered damaged goods. When it came to the military side of PTSD and suicide, it was already out there. It was already a thing that was talked about, but because, um, you know, you go into the military service and, and, and then, and then you're done and you're a veteran and you have all these support groups there. It really wasn't there um, in formal EMS stuff with police and fire. You, you had opportunities to get some counseling if it was a mega disaster or something like that. But for the most part, it's always been a very touchy subject. And I think it's prevented a lot of people from being able to get help they need. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we focus on that now in the work that we do is to make sure. Um, and I, I fully admit um, it wasn't until my involvement in 9-11, um, I wasn't really a, a huge believer in the total story of PTSD um, until it just basically walked up and smacked me in the face. So, um, you know, I regret I regret that um, that was a part of my mentality of it um, years ago, but um, I'm definitely on the other side of the coin now. Now, like a lot of people don't know, and this is going to go out everywhere, obviously it's going to be, um, but a lot of people don't know that the average American male, li average lifespan is 78 years old. Um, but the average lifespan for a first responder, police officer, firefighter is about 59. So there's a 19 year difference. That's a big difference. Yeah. What is it? That, what do you think that um, the reason why so many first responders um, pass away early? Well, um, I don't know. That's a, that's a hard question. I think, um, you know, there's uh, obviously stuff that could just be naturally part of a, a person's uh, health and, in, in uh, physical constitution that is the reason for that. But, um, you know, it, it's probably a, a, a hard to define uh, reason why that might be particularly. I don't know if I could actually put a finger on that. I, I, I do know that, um, you know, you're, you're always being pushed to your physical limit within a fire department or a police department or a, a rescue type service um, EMS. So 
Um, it just might be an endurance thing. You know, you, you only have, uh, you, you know, like uh, there's, there's people that say that there's, you're born with so many heartbeats the minute you're born. And when you hit the last one, that's the last one. So, you know, who knows, who knows what it is. And maybe there's some natural way that people that go into the military and EMS uh, somehow naturally divide themselves in, into that uh, life expectancy bracket. I don't know. So okay. it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, now, take us back to your experience on that Tuesday morning, because for me, I can just close my eyes and it brings me right back to sitting on that couch crying and, and, and being a broken man. What was your experience like that Tuesday morning? Well, that, that particular morning, I was actually um, working at an emergency room um, up where I used to live in California. And we were an hour away um, from what would be considered a major city. So we were in that what's known as the golden hour zone um, in a in a in a, a, a emergency room up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, so I arrived at work that day to see um, several people in the waiting room um, who were standing in front of the television set, um, just just crying. And so my first obvious question was, "What's going on?" And they point out you know, to the television. And right at the moment I looked up, the second plane was just hitting um, the towers. And I stood there in complete shock, just like everybody else. I just couldn't believe uh, what I was seeing. Um, and the one thing that actually did catch my eye was the bottom of the, the screen had the crawl going. Um, and I, I it might have been the Turner Broadcasting or headlines. I don't even remember what it was back then, but it, there was very few 24 hour um, news agencies at the time. So on the bottom of the screen, there was an 800 number that said, you know, we need um, rescue workers, we need help, we need doctors, we need dogs, we need all of this. And there's this 800 number. So I wrote the 800 number down and I ran to my office, um, which was, um, you know, just past the emergency room. Uh, I actually ran so fast, my shoes came off, but I, I left them in the hallway and I made it to my office and I called that 800 number um, because uh, I was fully trained um, and ready to go. I had a cadaver dog that was ready to go um, in, in uh, search and rescue. And when I called that number, I got through on the very first try. I was so shocked that that had happened. Um, I was actually a little bit taken taken back because you know, I wasn't even sure who I was talking to, but I was um, I was talking to emergency services of New York City and they were actually fielding um, the calls for that 800 number. And I explained who I was, uh, what my capabilities were, um, that I had a dog and we were ready to assist in any way we can. And they said, look, um, you know, we don't know how you're going to get here. Um, we know flights are being grounded. Um, I wasn't even sure right at that moment if they were completely done, but I know a lot of a lot of. Uh, air travel was just basically vaporizing everywhere. Um, and so uh, I said, don't worry about it. Um, I'll be in a vehicle heading your way um, shortly. And it was only, you know, a short time later, the same day that I was on my way via Interstate 80, uh, driving across the United States um, to New York City. Um, and I was told to uh, go to the Javits Center, which is the convention center in downtown uh, New York City. And that's where I was supposed to rendezvous with the people that I have been speaking with on the phone. So um, 
you know, that began the journey from California all the way out to New York City. Um, arrived there. Uh, it was Tuesday that, that this happened. So I arrived there um, late Thursday afternoon. Um, we had, <laughs> I brought a, another firefighter with me that, that I had uh, had as a colleague at the time. So we team drove um, across the United States. And, um, you know, a lot of crazy things actually happened on the way, um, which I can, you know, tell you about uh, later on in our discussion. But um, I, I, we, we just come over a rise um, and we can actually see um, lower Manhattan. We can see the smoke billowing up um, from the towers. And we, you know, at this time too, there was no GPS. There was no, nothing like that. We didn't have a Thomas guide of New York or anything like that. To, you know, we just, we just knew, you know, we basically had a triple A map with a yellow highlighted line across it on where we were, we were technically supposed to be driving. So we're, we're just going over the uh, George Washington bridge and we didn't know if we were going to go right or left or whatever we were going to do. Um, and then right at that moment, uh, uh, NYFD um, vehicle came past us that, that said like animal control or something on it. It was I was a little even surprised by that. Um, and I just said to my partner, I said, hey, whatever we do, stay six inches off the bumper of that vehicle. They're probably heading down, you know, uh, to the to the uh, location here. And sure enough, they did. We hopped on 9A and we went right down the Hudson. And then I just happened to look to my left and there's the Javits Center. And I, oh my God, there it is. That's where we're supposed to be. And so I pulled up around the opposite side of, of uh, where where we had first seen the Javits Center. Places surrounded by hundreds of state troopers, uh, uh, military people with machine guns and these massive cordoned off uh, protection zone. And I walked up to a state trooper and I said, hey, I was, you know, asked to come here from California. I've got I've got my dog. I'm supposed to go inside and register. And, and uh, the state troopers um, last name was Wonka, like Willy Wonka. It was a female state trooper, New York state trooper. So she escorted uh, me and my dog Porkchop into the building and we were taken to a table that had um, actually FEMA was was at the table. Um, doing the registering and accounting of people that were coming in um, to become volunteers. So she introduced me to the person at the table with FEMA. It said that I had just got here from California, had my dog with me, the guy's looking right at me, and his exact words out of his mouth were, get in your effing vehicle and go home, I don't need you. And I'm like, whoa, you know, and I go, wait, you just heard we're from we just came from california we got a dog we're ready to go he goes no get in your effing car and go home i'm not going to register you we don't need you at that point i was ready to go over the table and just destroy this guy state trooper grabs him by the arm we go outside and i and i just go you know what was that all about and she's like i have no idea what this guy's story is so i said well i i need uh I need to go find a place to stay. I got to regroup. I got to, I got to figure out, you know, what's going on here. So she tells me to go over to the Times Square Marriott, which is where apparently she said FEMA had the entire hotel or a vast majority of the rest of the rooms were being assigned to, to FEMA personnel coming from all across the United States. So we went there um, and 
I got registered under under my own name, under my own search and rescue um, business name. I wasn't deployed there as a firefighter from my hometown. I was actually there as a private, um, you know, dog handler with my own search and rescue business. And um, they gave us a room and I got all the gear up there, got my dog up there. Um, and I actually kind of needed uh, a drink at that moment. So I went down to the, it was like the fourth floor of the Times Square Marriott is where all the restaurants and bars are. So I'm sitting at this bar with my dog and there's a guy across the bar who kind of kept giving me the stink eye and I wasn't sure if he was pissed that I had the dog or what the deal was. But every time somebody got up in between myself and him, he would move a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And he finally gets right up next to me and he goes, Hey man, he goes, what are you doing here? And I'm like, Oh shit. You know, and I got to explain to this guy what's going on. And I, and I told him the story that I just told you. And this guy, he turned like red, almost purple with anger. He was so mad after hearing that story. He reaches into his suit. He's three, three piece suit guy pulls out a business card. He's like the assistant director of emergency communications for New York city. And he goes, you meet me on a street corner tomorrow morning at five in the morning. He goes, you'll be on the pile five minutes later. I'm like, all right. So sure enough, he was exactly where he said he was going to be. We met him. He escorted us to a place where the ID badges were being made. And when we got there, it was a, like a easy up, canopy kind of tent situation there probably was a thousand people in line trying to get in and most of them look like steel workers carhartt coveralls you know the hard hats the whole deal this guy walks us to the front of the line and he says i need two ids right now for these two guys and the guy gives him a little pushback and he, he loses his shit again he loses get on an id right now and no problem boom 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 two ids came out I was assigned to NYPD canine unit, um, which was operating out of a, a, a high school right around the corner from the pile. And so we uh, we went down, got our vehicle in a place where we were allowed to park because, you know, we're inside of a cordoned off area now. And uh, I was taken to um, the NYPD um, canine temporary, um, you know, uh, rally point and we registered in uh and literally 15 minutes later i turned the corner and it all unfolded from there so you know every a lot of people have seen it you know the footage um but what was actually seeing the pile and knowing that 343 of your brothers were in there and well i mean we didn't know how many at, the, at that time yeah, no, nobody knew i mean 2977 people were killed that day and and of course the 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 unknown amount of civilians that were in the building was a huge factor and obviously um so many uh you know emergency personnel fire department port, port authority um one one thing that actually before I ever turned that corner and saw the pile for the first time. And this is, you know, this is just a couple of days later, the, the smell of death was so strong in the air already. Um, it was already, I mean, it just it made the hair on my arm stand up the minute I got out of my vehicle and boom, you're hit, you know, you're hit with this very distinct uh, odor. 
Um, and, you know, we, we, like I said, we got registered and we, we were basically sent out. The guy goes, look, he goes, just go do what you do. Um, there's no, there's none of our guys that you need to team up with. Just take your dog and go do what you're supposed to do. And so, you know, I turned the corner and the, and, you know, the whole drive out to New York was, you know, well, we're going to find somebody in a pocket or we're going to, we're going to have a part of the building that's actually, because we don't know, we, we haven't seen anything really, except for my showed up on a newspaper front page. There's very little being broadcast of the actual um, pile. And the second I did turn that corner and see it, um, I, I lost all hope. I lost immediately just knew that there was, if somebody had not already been found in the first couple of days before I got there, there was no way somebody was in this pile, which was still on fire, thousand, you know, two, 3000 degree fire burning fuel. You can smell jet fuel. You can smell diesel fuel. It was just a horrific deal. There was no training that you could ever go through to just have something like that just hit you like that. It was it was bad. It was very, very bad, bad situation. Um, so what was Porkchop's reaction? Because, you know, we, we know about their height and smell and all that. So yeah. what was his reaction? So I had turned the corner and um, just out in front of me, um, there was a battalion chief standing there all by himself. And there was a, there was like a patch of ground that looked like fresh asphalt just before it gets steamrolled. It's called fresh mat. Um, and he's standing on this patch of, of ground that has no debris on it. There's nothing from the building there. So I walk up to him and I introduce myself and I said, Hey, can, can you just give me a sense of where you guys need me or do you want to pair me up with somebody? I mean, just kind of give me a roundabout idea of what's going on. And he says, well, this is actually, this is actually the only officially cleared piece of ground right now, you know, that we have that we're standing on. And while I'm talking to him, um, my dog was actually, <laughs> giving the the commands that he's supposed to give that he has located something but i i, I imagine that i was still in some a little bit of a, a shock kind of situation of, of still taking in this whole thing um and i'm looking down at pork chop and i'm saying you know quiet quiet you know and and but he's actually pawing at the ground and he's doing what he's supposed to do and it wasn't until i realized that he was telling me this only having just been told that this is cleared ground and it's, you know, there's nothing here that we should be looking for. We should be over here at the pile kind of a deal. Um, I look down and I see a little tiny shimmer of what looked like gold to me. So I get down on my hands and knees and um, sure enough, um, it's a wedding band. Um, and uh, the wedding band was actually on a finger. Um, and within moments um, I had, I, with my trowel, I had uncovered um, a, a considerably large uh, human remain. Um, and that's my, within my first 45 minutes of being there. Um, that's, that's how it started. And it never changed from that moment on. It was constantly finding stuff like that nonstop. Now, did you ever find anybody that was alive? 
never found anybody alive and um uh to, to to be perfectly honest about it um i i never saw a completely whole person um, the entire time i was there now like i said i have my cousin actually went down there and he was one of the construction workers that they, they let go there and um he would say you know he, he would work 18 24 hours you know as much as he can and yeah. there was guys that were staying there police officers, firefighters, construction workers, they didn't want to go home. They wanted yeah, to, you know, there were people that were sleeping right there um, in, in the buildings that had the windows blown out, you know, and they were just sleeping on the ground inside. Uh, they had set up cots and little, you know, almost like they were, it looked like, it looked like people were camping at the landfill is really the best way to describe it. It was a, it's pretty bad deal. I mean, I, I can't even describe how lucky I was to be able to actually have a place to go back to and shower and, and switch gear and have clean gear. We were doing those long shifts, but you know, I, I had, I had this place secured, you know, that we could go and take the dog to and stuff like that. Um, my, my very first day there, um, pork chop was actually attacked by a police dog that had broken its lead and had grabbed him and viciously, viciously uh, was just tearing at him, trying to kill him, basically. Um, and uh, we we got taken to a, a veterinary mash unit, which was set up just on the edge of the perimeter of the security cordon. And uh, he got checked out there. Um, and that's where this uh, photo that ended up on the cover of every newspaper in the world the next day, somebody had snapped a picture of basically pork chop getting looked at at this place and uh that opened up another whole scenario a crazy scenario for us but uh yeah it was uh a lot of guys said that it was loud but then it was quiet and so talk to us about you know because a lot of people if they've never been you know in any kind of scenario like that or any kind of war or anything that sometimes when the shit hits the fan is when things actually get really still and quiet. So what was that like? Well, even even when we arrived there, um, it was still an extremely chaotic situation. I mean, they had just barely gotten the the parts of the cranes moved in and they were trying to establish, you know, foundations for these massive cranes to set up on. Uh, there was end dump trucks, high side dump trucks for miles down 9a just waiting in line to come in and receive debris that was supposed to be taken out of there um and the yeah, another thing and there's pictures out now of it but you know there were there were thousands of people there with five gallon buckets in their hands picking up one piece of paper at a time one you know piece of metal whatever it was that you could physically pick up i mean it was you know, it was like pixie sticks, you know, and that was the only way. And there was people standing in lines, like 200 people in, in a, they look like arms of an octopus coming off the pile. And they would be handing these buckets to each other and fresh buckets would be going in. And that's how, that's how the early days of 9-11 began on trying to get into these places where people thought there might've been pockets and stuff, you know, but that's where the fire was. That's where all the the, the chemical smells were coming from the, the everything bad was happening where everybody was standing and trying to you know, basically claw their way into. Um, but these quiet moments, um, 
I, I very distinctly remember there was there was one day where we were there and that maybe might have been even the first three or four days we were there um we were on top of the pile i was i had pork chop and we had actually i had met other people who were in my exact same position who had gotten there with their dogs um independent dog handlers who were basically shunned or set aside and we all ended up forming our own task force team so i i was part of four or five other guys that had dogs and we went and we met every day from that point forward and went out and did the work that, that we did but so we're on the pile and there's no flights and and we know that there's no aircraft flying around the united states there was a, a, a every now and again we'd hear a helicopter go by but there was this one particular moment where we just heard the loudest drone of like prop airplane engines and the whole place went quiet as a mouse and everybody looked up in the sky and there was this fixed wing aircraft that was going so slow you know right above us and we later found out it was it was some sort of reconnaissance filming plane that was trying to get a, a picture but that brought the place to a standstill because the minute you hear that you're thinking oh shit, here comes another airplane. you know i mean we nobody knew what was going on um, that moments like that, um, if, if we had come across a firefighter or a police officer's remains, everything came to a screeching halt. Um, all work stopped in a very, um, uh, incredible, uh, procession was formed to remove, um, that, that person, um, and bring them out in a, in a flag covered, uh, situation and get them into an ambulance and, and taken away. So. Um, there were there were moments like that that were um, very emotional, very big moments um, that were happening down there as far as things just going silent. And then the and then the sound of bagpipes would start, which is a, <laughs> another crazy uh, thing to remember. Um, the minute something like that happened, there's there was bagpipes playing. So uh, very interesting um, how all of that kind of came to be. Now a lot of times, like they'll, they'll show a lot of pictures of like the lines you were talking about. And if you look really closely, maybe 60% or 75% of the people were not wearing masks. Yeah. You know, I guess they got so tired and it was so hot that some of them actually took off their masks for long periods of time, correct? Yeah, and nobody, I mean, there was, that's a really tough deal. So in my my situation, every picture that was ever taken of me there, you could see I had a respirator hanging around the back of my neck or hanging down on my chest. But I had a I had a, a dog that needed verbal commands to, you know, have him perform his job. And and the particular breed of dog that I had was a dog that basically watches your eyes and your mouth and they try to think three steps ahead of you. So I could never wear a respirator while I was there. Um, there were some um, people that just had the regular COVID kind of paper mask on. There were people that were wearing respirators, but it was extremely humid. Um, there was many days where it was very hot. Um, it was very difficult to, to get physical and be pulling stuff out, you know, and, and stuff like that. But um, it was a it was an individual thing when it came to to wearing respirators and and uh, um, I, I do suffer the consequences of, of of that circumstance today. So 
Um, it's just not, it's just something that nobody really had their mind set on that this was something that we that we had to do because um, we had had rain as well and so the dust situation might not have been so bad one day but there was still a massive fire burning and, and smoke and chemical smell just pouring out of the pile so um it, it you know there was a lot of different circumstances where a respirator could have should have might have been worn but um it, it was an individual situation that kind of dictated that so you know another question is um and it's a couple questions in one just because i i love to hear you talk and i'm just so grateful and once again thank you so much um how long did you stay on the on in new york city and what was it like when they told you all right it's time to go home and were you a different person when you drove home than the person you were when you drove there yeah i was i was there uh, more more than a month um and it every single day from the time i got there um things became a little more organized there was more command centers there was more uh organized food distribution supplies all that type of thing was progressively by the day getting more organized and organized and organized. Um, there were very well-known uh, situations where um, people in charge were trying to declare it no longer a rescue effort, but a recovery effort. Um, there was um, there was a lot of chest pounding. There was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, emotions were running high everywhere. Um, nobody wanted to give up um, and believe that that everybody that was alive, you know, uh, had not been found in those types of situations. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way a, a mass casualty incident, um, you know, but this one, obviously on Pearl Harbor level mass casualty, I mean, it's not like a bus went off the road. I mean, there was 2,977 people and the reports leading up to the building collapses was 50,000, 60,000, 70,000. Nobody knew how many people got out of the buildings. Nobody knew. So it was very, very difficult um, to separate the emotional part of it um, from rescue and recovery. Um, but um, I did I did a, a, a pretty good stretch down there. So now when they told you it's time to go home and you hopped in your vehicle, what was that long drive home like mentally? Well, a lot of reflection. Um, uh, I was also, you know, on the heels of leaving uh, New York City. Um, there were some some ugly things going on back home. Um, uh, we'll just call it professional jealousy or agency jealousy. Um, I was there as a private uh, dog handler, a private individual. Um, and so I was coming home to some people that were actually already targeting me, um, and, and coming after me because they, they didn't think I had a right to be there type of deal. Um, we had just experienced, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of some of the most horrific things I've ever, ever seen in my life. Um, so it was, it was bittersweet coming home. It was a relief coming home. Um, because I, I had done everything that I could possibly do at that point. And 
day by day politics became a bigger umbrella and a bigger dark shadow over over uh, ground zero so um i think i was actually relieved that i was that i was gone and the official end of it wasn't it was it came well after i had left but um at that point um we had we had reached the boundary of of what we were capable of providing as far as our skill set so then um now we're gonna kind of bring us up a little bit into you know what you're doing now why you got involved with it and tell us some of the statistics that people don't even realize now like i live in like i said i live in north arlington and the cemetery is right by our house and there's a 9-11 part of the cemetery and mm-hmm. almost every day there's you hear bagpipes playing so and we know that there's people dying every day because of 9-11 syndrome like they you know even the gulf war syndrome you know same thing with 9-11 so talk to us about that things that people probably don't even think of well one of um one of our mottos that's that's branded into our foundation is 9-11 didn't end in 2001 and um a lot of what people don't realize is that 20 years down the road, um, 9-11 is still taking lives every week, sometimes every day. Um, I have a I have a daily email that comes to me um, that chronicles um, 9-11 related deaths. So the World Trade Center Health Program was created with um, incredible work from guys like John Feel, um, Feel Good uh, Foundation, um, and a lot of other great people that were associated uh, with him to get the World Trade Center Health Program established um, and the Victims Compensation Fund established for um, people that were obviously immediately impacted and affected by 9 11. Um, in the program, um, there's over 100,000 people currently under treatment for toxic exposure and 9 11 related illnesses that are certified and proven to have been. Um, direct links to long-term exposure, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even immediate short-term exposure from the heaviest um, stuff, you know, in the in the hours preceding um, 9/11, um, and the and the cleanup effort that went on. I mean, there was there there was they were still finding human remains on ledges of buildings years later. So, um, you know, the types of of things that affected people are still affecting them 20 years later. Since 9-11, um, over 3,000 more first responders um, and people involved directly with 9-11 have died of 9-11 related illnesses. Um, I'm actually I'm going through cancer treatment. Um, they're just now actually certifying um, the lung conditions that I have. Um, so um, 10,000 of those 100,000 people are actually diagnosed with 9-11 related cancers. And these are all cancer clusters that don't fit the norm or are way outside of the scope of any other type of long-term studies that have ever been done. So um, it's important that people understand that these things are still happening. There's lots of incredible foundations, uh, the Siller Foundation, the Feel Good Foundation, Tuesday's Children, uh, 9-11 Families. There's tons of them out there that do incredible work um, for the people directly affected, um, the victims' families, first responders, you know, the citizens of, of New York that were affected by this. So um, it's important that people understand and, and realize that this is going on. And that's one of the reasons that I actually started the foundation that I'm, I'm the 
CEO of currently. And it was over this 20 year period that I actually was traveling across the United States. And I've been invited to, to speak and talk to people about not only service dogs, but about my time at Ground Zero, just as, as we're talking about it now. And I always asked the audience, would you ever go to any of the national memorials that were created for 9-11 um, if you had the chance to? And usually 90% of everybody said no. You know, unless I'm going to Times Square or something like that, we're never going to go to New York to see the 9-11 Museum or we're never going to go to the Pentagon or that type of deal. So that became the catalyst of you know, we're going to be approaching the 20th anniversary um, and something needed to be done. And so I started my foundation, which is 9-11 Remember the Traveling Memorial Exhibit. And we have designed a um, traveling exhibition that is a incredible replica of the 9-11 Museum and Memorial so that this can travel across the United States and it's going to go to every single 9-11 memorial that was ever made with the steel beams or artifacts from from the world trade center there's estimated to be um over a thousand the number is fluctuated between that and 1400 but our goal is to take this traveling exhibition at no cost to any city and visit every single one of these 9-11 memorials and continue to tell this story so that people will understand um, that 9-11 is still killing people and, and destroying lives and families to this day. Um, it's extremely important that um, in this culture, this cancel culture of tearing down statues and defacing memorials and doing all of this crap that's going on right now, that they're never going to get somebody like me to not remember people who we've lost in our lives. Because if we're not the ones that are able to tell everybody what we knew about these people and their lives before we lost them, then we'll never have that opportunity again. So that's why the work that we're doing right now is so important. And it's and it's uh, it's been very difficult. COVID uh, basically threw a massive wall up in front of our effort to complete the construction of, of what we're, we're working on. But um, we haven't quit. Um, that's one of the reasons why the podcast was created so that we can, can continue traveling right now and going to all these places, which we've been doing for, for, for many months now. But that's um, that's the work that we are engaged in right now. Now, what's the name of the podcast and where is it available? So the podcast is on Spotify, Stitcher and iHeart right now. Um, the best way to... Uh, get linked up with it is to go to our website, which is 911travelingmemorial.org, and just click on the podcast link and it'll take you to the platforms. And then you could uh, join or you know create an account. Um, they're all free. So you can you can go in and listen to um, the podcasts um, that we're um, just now releasing. It's, it's a very new thing. Um, this is all new territory for me, so I don't I don't have all of your experience. But um, we spent several months down in Florida, starting in July. Um, did some incredible interviews. We have some great things coming. We have some incredible um, podcasts coming up. Um, but um, we're very very fortunate to be working with incredible people like Daryl Worley with the Daryl Worley Foundation. Um, he's got the the 
song have you forgotten which is a, a, a yeah. massive massive hit um we have been working closely with him and other veterans organizations because not only did 9-11 cost lives on that day and the 20 years since but we lost thousands and thousands of military service members linked into wars and things associated with 9-11 and that day forward and that's part of us honoring um those those uh, military service members as well so we're not just the first responder centric um foundation even though you know my direct links are 9-11 um the the story goes way way beyond just that and so um we intend to make sure that um nobody is forgotten in in this project that we've started and we'll continue to work on despite the hurdles and the the hill that we're still climbing we're gonna we're gonna finish this so you know in your experience you know things are different when you can see you know when you can touch like for us in, in north arlington there's a little space and they have one of the beams that were in the world trace it's different when you can feel it when you can touch it what are some of the reactions you're getting from the people that are you know what you're doing when they can actually feel when they can actually touch and they get their audio senses around things it kind of changes things for people doesn't it well one thing that um that we experience every single day is no matter where we go and we have a, a beautifully wrapped um tour bus with the podcast on it and then we have another um a support vehicle that's wrapped um, with our foundation graphics and everybody that sees that they come to you like bees to honey and they have a story to tell you about 9-11 and they tell you you know where they were that day they could tell i had i had three eggs going two pieces of bacon my toast was slightly burnt on one side i mean they know the details down to the intimate details of where they were that day and those are the types of things that we are looking forward to capturing and recording and archiving these anecdotal stories into the 9-11 museum um you know and they they already do stuff like this at the museum and they've had opportunities to travel across the united states and do this but we're doing it on a different level now because we're in every single corner of america we're going to every single place every state has memorials but we've been invited to more places than just where these memorials exist uh, there might be cities that have um, a firefighter's memorial or a fallen police officer's memorial or just a veteran's memorial. If you go to our website and just quickly fill out the online form to invite us to your city, you're automatically logistically in the roadmap of where we will take this exhibition when it's finally completed. Um, the devastating effects and the lockdowns and everything of COVID have severely affected our ability to complete the project um, but it's always been going on in the background and like i said we're going to finish this and we're going to get across the finish line um, but you know we have um, we have a situation where to this day we have people that want to come out and talk about this and 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 continue the remembrances um, tell us about their family members so just like a one of the reasons why i believe this is virtually guided by the hand of god so to speak um you know 20 years later i'm in florida and i'm um 
staying overnight in a city in Florida and a person that had invited us there had gone to our website and asked us to come down and visit their town for no particular reason except just to meet us. But during that particular meeting, um, I was introduced to a 9-11 widow. She's in one of our podcasts. And in the interview with this woman, she describes her husband's final moments as she knows them. And she describes that horrible day for her um, and her unborn daughter at the time. And so during this podcast interview with this person that I never expected to meet, never heard of in my entire life, 20 years later, um, something was revealed in that conversation. And what was revealed was that another person that I have become friends with who was very involved with the fire department and Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani at Ground Zero just happened to be the very last person that ever was in contact with this woman's husband. And it was only the coincidence of this podcast that these two people are eventually actually going to meet and talk um, and find out the rest of the story of her husband's final moments. And that never would have happened unless we had done this project, this, this meeting of, 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 of her and myself and, and me knowing something that she didn't know and her telling me a story that I had never heard just it was like two trains on a track. It was unbelievable. That's why this has to go on. This is why we have to continue this remembrance because it's now has not been the first time that it's happened. It's happened numerous times now. And we just keep going. We're just going to keep telling these stories because there's millions of these stories out there from that day. Now, we have a lot of first responders that are going to be listening to this, military personnel. And a lot of us deal with grief. A lot of us deal with survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are some things that if a person's listening to this, what are some steps that a person can listen to? can do if they're dealing with you know survivor's guilt or still dealing with grief what are some things that you've that you've seen over the years that have helped you or others well the first and foremost thing is um everybody should should at least know that what they're experiencing what they're feeling is real it's not what somebody else tells you it is or is not you lived it you experienced it what goes on within yourself and how it's handled from that moment on is hugely important on how you will get through the situation or not. And um, thank God the resources are getting better every day and the, and the amount of organizations and people out there for this type of thing um, are available in, in um, much better numbers than they were 20 years ago. Um, the other thing that you have to remember and realize is that um, stigma kills. And if you allow the stigma of what you think people are going to look at you like, if you say you have a problem, you have to get that out of your mind. Because um, it's going to be one of the things that saves your life if things are really that bad. And um, like I said, I, 
I was not a massive believer in PTSD when I was at Ground Zero. I didn't believe. I mean, I knew I knew people that I had worked with that had, had some pretty rough moments or some rough experiences, but I never saw firsthand, you know, somebody that was dealing with PTSD um, that I was completely convinced was something that could wreck alive or, or, or wreak such havoc on somebody's personal ability to, to function, you know, and it's like, uh, I guess the greatest description would be, you know, people are called functioning alcoholics, people who go to work and, and you would never know that you're a stark raving <laughs> drunk, you know, and just a terrible, you know, this or that. But um, that's what goes on with PTSD and suicide. You go out and try to work and be, you know, a regular part of society like you were before something broke inside. I can guarantee you everybody can break. Every single person can break in some way, shape or form. And so the importance of realizing that and not letting some of these hurdles, you know, they could be small hurdles or they could be mountain sized hurdles, but you have to be able to help get those mountains down to molehills, so to speak, and and understand that a single phone call can get you more help than you ever imagined that you could ever get. And and on the outside of our our, our bus and on our website, you can find places to go for help. Many incredible organizations and foundations out there that will come to you, that will provide services in your area. And that's one of the things that we're providing in the traveling exhibition, which is four full-size semi-trucks, 53 feet long, double wide expandable, 1,200 square foot each. One half of one of those trailers is dedicated directly to this type of deal. Wherever we pull up with this exhibition, anybody, firefighter, veteran, police officer, ambulance driver, tow truck driver, doesn't matter, regular person on the street, if you're having trouble or if you're struggling, you can go to a computer database that we will have that will allow you to be put directly in touch with the people that you need to talk to, the people that are waiting for you to give them a call. And so those are the types of things that will be an integral part of, of the work that we do throughout throughout this project. So obviously, uh, it's all cost money. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously, you know, like us, we got to keep the lights on. You have to, you know, do these things. So how can we support your mission? How can we support you in your endeavor and whatever you're doing? How can we support you for what you're doing? So I, I really appreciate um, you bringing this up, and and this has been this has been um, a huge learning curve for us. I've never uh, run a five hundred one c three before, um, and one of the things that um, was part of getting this organization started was you end up with twenty full time jobs, even though you think you're at one full time job. There's twenty individual full time jobs. It's fundraising, it's it's doing the taxes, it's telling the story, it's uh, getting all the, the creative work done to, to get these things organized and get the building started and whatnot. So we have actually funded this personally. Um, we've never taken any type of, uh, you know, aside from a person getting a challenge coin and, and handing us $20 or something like that. 
we've never campaigned for public money, even though we're a 501c3. And we're converting out of that um, stage right now. So anybody can go to our website and they could become a partner. Um, they can become a corporate uh, partner or sponsor. Um, you can become a sponsor of, of the podcast, just like you have your, your sponsors that you announce every time. We are um, 100% open to anybody reaching out to us that wants to help us carry this mission forward and and help us be able to tell these stories to help us um, get people that you might know in touch with the services and the things that, that we've just talked about. So uh, being a 501c3, obviously um, any contributions can be um, written off, you know, as a, as a tax write-off and you can follow those rules, you know, per state or where you're from. Um, but we definitely, definitely need um, public involvement with us now because we've actually exhausted the amount of, of economic help that we can actually give to our own foundation at this point. And if we proceed any further without public input, um, we could lose our status as a 501c3, which is a devastating thing to happen um, because we are uh, a group of people that nobody takes a salary. Nobody's ever made a penny doing what we do. We've exhausted our own personal finances to get us to the point that we're at right now. So um, we welcome everybody with open arms. Um, 911travelingmemorial.org. Um, that will just give you uh, an incredible website to go through, um, find out history, find out statistics, facts. All the things that we've been talking about in this conversation are available on that website. Um, places to donate to, places to contact us where we will get directly back to you. Um, I make 99% of the calls personally and, and we get contacted by thousands of people and I speak to every one of them personally. So um, we're grateful to hear from you and we'd be even more grateful if you found a way to contribute to us. Well, we're definitely going to push it out everywhere. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and telling your story. And I'm going to start a prayer chain for you also for your health because, you know, a lot of people realize that, you know, we're trying, you know, we're trying to be strong for everybody else. And and sometimes it's when we're at, it's when we're at our weakest that we're trying to be stronger for everybody else. So definitely going to pray for you. I want to thank you guys for watching. You know, you guys, without you, this show wouldn't be what it is if this touched you the way it touched me um please leave a comment on um because we're gonna is this gonna go out on linkedin it's gonna go out everywhere and it'll go on, it'll go out on the podcast in about six weeks so please leave a comment and i'll definitely shoot the comments over to eric so guys if this touched you as much as you do please go to the website even if you just can make a one-time donation just something to help eric help save lives Brother, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a, an honor to speak with you. I know we're going to be great friends uh, from today forward. Uh, we have a lot of uh, mutual things that we're uh, impassioned to, uh, to to let other people know about. And, and uh, hopefully um, this is a, a very long and fruitful relationship. And what was the name of, what was the name of the podcast again? The podcast is 9-11 Remembered in quotes, Let's Roll podcast tour and um, let's roll obviously is referencing um, that incredible man Todd Beamer who put up a heroic fight to make sure that more people um, weren't 
weren't taken from us um, that horrible day in 2001. And so we traveled the United States um, honoring him. Um, they're great rally words uh, to use for, for everything that we do going forward. And uh, we, we are, are blessed every day to be able to say that. So, guys, make sure you go check them out. You said it's on it's on Spotify. It's on iHeart. Make sure you check them out. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you leave a comment. Let them know that they're they're changing lives. All right, yeah, guys. Three three links on the website that take you to the platforms. Awesome. Have an amazing week, guys. Vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. All right, brother Eric. Have an amazing week, brother. You as well. Take care. Hey guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand, coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee, and, and it, will, it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built, so if you guys want to our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.